Well, good morning, church family. Welcome. It's good to see you all this morning. I want to take a second just to say hi to our ladies who are in the jail uh, week after week. We're thrilled to have you with us as always, and we're thankful that we have an opportunity to have a relationship with you. And we're praying for you on a regular basis and glad to have you with us today. Everybody in the church said amen. 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 Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 1 today. Last week, as Aaron kicked off our Advent series in the Gospel of John, He was highlighting how John's Advent account doesn't actually talk at all about Mary and Joseph or a virgin birth or Bethlehem or a manger or shepherds or magi, but the Advent account in the Gospel of John is no less wonderful, no less spectacular, no less beautiful because it details the Advent of the eternally pre-existent Jesus Christ the light of the world who comes into our world that is full of darkness and oppressed in darkness. And Jesus comes into our world, into our darkness, shining his light and love. Next week, we're going to look at Luke's account of the advent of the Messiah in the Gospel of Luke. Today, we're going to look at Matthew's Gospel account of the advent of Jesus Christ. And my friendly reminder that advent simply means arrival. And we talk about every year in December time, Christmas time, when we say Advent, it's simply meaning the arrival, the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So as you have turned to Matthew chapter 1, you might be thinking, well, okay, we talked about John last week, we're going to do Matthew this week, Luke next week, and then uh, on the 17th, we have our, our kids are going to be ministering to us through their Christmas program. And we think, well, what about Mark? Well, if you open to the beginning of Mark, you'd see that Mark just picks up. No Advent account, no, um, no birth of Christ account. And so Mark's going to sit this one out. There is, though, as we look this week and next week, John is, is in its own category of the way that he details the Advent of Christ, highly theological. Um, Matthew and Luke are much more detail-oriented of how Jesus Christ came, who his parents were, and all of that. And there's considerable agreement between these two accounts of Matthew and Luke on especially the primary main details, like the engaged couple, Mary and Joseph, being the parents. Yet, Jesus was conceived while Mary was still a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit in the time or in the era of the reign of King Herod. Both parents were godly, This is seen in Matthew and in Luke. We see an angel makes the announcement of the coming birth and names the child in advance. This is seen in Matthew and in Luke. And the birth occurs in a little town of? That's seen in Matthew and in Luke. But the family does eventually settle in Nazareth, also seen in Matthew and in Luke. What else we see in Matthew and in Luke is an emphasis on Jesus's Davidic heritage, meaning from the line of David, as well as his messianic role. Beyond those things that I just mentioned, Matthew and Luke then deviate massively to highlight and emphasize different details for different purposes. Now, in light of all of that, how many of you have ever either bought a new phone, maybe you bought an iPhone because you were delivered from the kingdom of Android, or perhaps, sorry, I just made a couple of enemies, um, maybe you bought a computer 
or perhaps it's you downloaded an app, and when you're trying to get in to access it, there's this page that comes up that makes you scroll and read all this stuff. You know what I'm talking about? It's the terms and agreements. And if I took an honest poll of who actually reads every word of those things before clicking I have read and agree and then clicking continue, I think there would be very, 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 very few hands that would go up and saying, I read everyone every time, right? That's the way that we tend to navigate those things. We just skim or skip over them because we don't actually really care about the legalese in there, though perhaps we, we should. Nonetheless, we skim over them or even just scroll past them to click on that checkbox and say, I have read, mm, and I agree to the above statements. Why do we do that? Well, because we don't really care about all that stuff. And furthermore, we don't really think that it'll ever have an effect on us. And we just want to hurry up and get to the usefulness of whatever service or product it is that we're trying to get access to. So we go, yeah, 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 I've read and I agree. Oftentimes, it's only when something goes wrong with said product or service that we want to go back and look at those terms and agreements. I remember when I became the lead pastor, I started reviewing a bunch of contracts that we have with different services. And I remember one in particular that as I began looking at the record of payment that we were giving monthly for this service, I noticed there was a point where the payment just went up a considerable amount. And I'm going, they can't do this. I'm talking to certain team members in the finance department going, did they send us a notification saying, hey, in a month or two or whatever, your payment is going to increase from this to this? Because if you've got Netflix or Spotify or whatever, perhaps you're used to getting that notification warning saying, hey, this service has been $12.99 and on December 1st, it's going to start being $16.99 and we revolt and tweet and we're furious and then we go, okay, fine. But I don't recall ever seeing that. I'm asking the staff, did they ever see that? And they go, no. And I'm going, well, this is absurd. They can't do this. I was like, get me the contract. And so I look at the paper, and then I start to look at the terms and agreements. And there was a line there that said they could, in fact, do that whenever they wanted without telling us based on their own costs that it was required to serve us. Well, that made a, a fun exchange over, I don't know, a year's time, and now we have a different service relative to that one. <laughs> All of that to say, the way that we treat those terms and agreements of, yeah, 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 boring, fine print, I don't really care, just let me get to the usefulness of the good stuff, is a lot of times the same way that we treat the opening verses of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, if you're there with me, starting in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. A lot of us would go, oh, genealogy section, snooze fest, boring. Let me skip ahead to verse 18 where it starts to get interesting. I want to hear the story. Let's go on. Verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, 
by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab. Let me just pause for a moment. I know there's a few pregnant families might want to take notes and consider a few names. I would love to dedicate your child Amminadab. Okay. Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Matthew wants you to notice that right there. Let's continue reading. And David was the father of Solomon, the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, another good one to take down, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, and at the, or at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Verse 12, and after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of of Shiltiel, and Shiltiel the father of Zerubbabel, noted, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, man, Lord, please don't hold me accountable to these pronunciations, <laughs> and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph. Oh, we're familiar with that one. The husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Christ meaning the anointed one. Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. It's precious to us. It's like honey on our lips. Your word is priceless. Your word is living and active, and it is powerful. Lord, I ask by your Holy Spirit that you would be at work, stirring our affections for Jesus, opening our eyes to see and believe the truth. Lord, if there's anyone hearing me today or another day watching this after the fact that does not believe in you or does not know you, I ask that your Holy Spirit would open their eyes to see and believe. And for those of us who do know, Lord, I pray that you would woo us and draw us closer that you would stir our affections for you, that you would increase our awe and our wonder of the God, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh, humbled himself to be born as a baby. Lord, we become far too familiar with this wonderful, awesome, Beautiful truth. Give glory to yourself today, Jesus. Amen. This passage is one of the most <laughs> neglected passages in all of Scripture. In fact, many of you, as I was reading these verses, were sitting there thinking, oh, he's really reading this. <laughs> and like the terms and agreements that most of us just skim or skip, 
When we get to Jesus' genealogy, oftentimes we skim or skip. And in our minds, we, we click that metaphorical button of, I have read and agreed to the lineage of Christ. Indeed, this was me for a very large percentage of my life, most certainly in my adolescence, my younger years, and it took me becoming more of a student of the Bible rather than just a user of the Bible to help me see the gold that was tucked into these genealogies and Matthew's intent that is there. It's really unfortunate that we approach these verses with a posture of, Yawn, or can we move on? Can we get to the good stuff? Can we get to the place where something is useful for me? Because what we can miss is the gospel or the good news that Matthew is already in verse 1 passively to us preaching. And it's only passive to us because we're modern Westerners. If you were an ancient Easterner, especially a first century Jew, and you read this, this would not be yawn fest to you at all because you would be living in a culture and in a family and in a heritage where lineage and birthright and bloodline was so very important. Every family historically throughout the Jewish history would take meticulous detail of their family line. And so you would read this. Mind you, Matthew, who's writing this, is writing this gospel account, his evangelistic account of this Jesus of Nazareth, recognizing, I want to try and hit every Jew and help them see that this Jesus of Nazareth is not just some loony guy who's trying to convince everybody that he's the Messiah. I want to do everything I can to convince the Jew that Jesus is Firstly, qualified to be the Messiah as a descendant from Abraham and David all the way to Jesus. Further, Matthew understands that you cannot understand fully or rightly the arrival of Jesus unless you understand it in light of the bigger picture that the Bible provides. See, it is possible for us to just skip ahead. We could turn a few pages right now to chapters 5, 6, and 7 and read the Sermon on the Mount, and we could immediately find the gold nuggets of applicable things that we can bring into our life about forgiving others and, or the Beatitudes that blessed are the meek, and I want to apply that to my life to be meek. Or I could go to chapter 6 and go, man, uh, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear, for your heavenly Father knows you have need of these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. We could spend a lot of time in Matthew feeling like we're pulling out points that apply directly to our life, and those things would most certainly be helpful and useful and beautiful and wonderful. But still, we can read those things and read them in a way that is divorced from the grand scheme of not only how Jesus lived or what Jesus taught, but who Jesus is in God's fulfillment of God's plan and God's promises and what he accomplished in redemptive history as the son of Mary and Joseph, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of God. I want to point out three key gospel messages that are packed into this list. 
Three key themes of Matthew's infancy narrative. Number one is Jesus is the hope of Israel. We will see that in this lineage. Number two in this lineage, we will see that Jesus is the hope not only of Israel, but of all people. Because for every single one of us who are not born Jews, that's the good news that you and I need. I was, did the DNA test, and I, my whole life I grow up thinking that I'm a percentage Jew, and I find out, oh, there's none there. I was like, man, I thought I was chosen. I am chosen. Thank you, Lord. Number three, we'll see from this lineage that Jesus is the king of all people. As we consider this first theme, Jesus is the hope of Israel. Let's look again at verse one from Matthew one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one foretold to come and save God's people, Israel. And if we're going to rightly understand this Jesus Christ who is the Jewish Messiah, according to Jewish scriptures, we have to somewhat understand the Jewish mind or perspective, especially from the first century. Why is this genealogy so important? Why is it something that we modern Westerners shouldn't just go, oh yeah, terms and agreements. Get me to the good stuff. We see throughout the Old Testament the weight, the priority, the importance that is given to birthright and to heritage and inheritance and bloodlines. Why? Because it was firstly important to understand where you came from who you were, who your identity is as to where you came from. I also remember when I did that identity test and was a little disappointed to find out that there was zero Jewish blood in me. I was also at the same time elated to find out, wow, I'm like super duper UK. Shocker by my pale skin and freckles and dark hair. But I am like very, very UK, like 25% English, 25% Scottish, there's a, a good chunk of Irish in there, and then there's a bunch of other like Scandinavian, Norwegian, Slavic. I'm a mutt, pure mutt. But I'm mostly, more than anything, I'm UK. And all the time, my whole life, I'm going, man, I really want to visit the UK. Seems like a fun, cool place to visit. Got to go to the home of golf and want to hear all these wonderful accents. And I don't even like tea, but I want to try it. <laughs> all the more, though, when I find out who I am in a lineage sense, and I called my dad. I was like, Dad, how come you never told me I'm Scottish? And he was like, yeah, I thought we did. I'm like, no, I need a kilt now. <laughs> There's this sense that's fascinating when you learn somewhat of who you are. For the Jew, they didn't want to have to learn. They wanted to keep the sense of who they are. Because they also recognize the covenants that God had given to the Jewish people, starting with... Abraham, and then passing on to so many others, especially secondarily and emphatically, David. And thankfully, we'll see that those covenant promises are good for us as well. Another reason it is important is they had to know who had a right to what. This birthright, this lineage, helps you know who has a right to what. I mean, if I died... You could all sit here and go, well, I'm going to claim your house. Well, you can claim it all you want. You don't have a right to. 
In my will, it's written to my wife and daughters. And it doesn't matter what you think or what you want. What matters is what is legally proper and whether or not you have a right to it. And at the most fundamental level, when Matthew is writing his gospel, his evangelistic account of this Jesus of Nazareth, and he's trying to tell this story in a way that would convince the Jew that this one Jew, Jesus Christ, is the Messiah, at a fundamental level, no person would have the right to be the Messiah of the world, but even zoomed in at a Jewish level, of the people, the Jews, if they were not first a true Jew, born a son of Abraham and ultimately a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. This is why the fine print matters. Because like me in my ignorance that day when I'm like, how dare they? They couldn't do this. It's important to understand that if someone was going to be the Messiah, they had to be from the Abrahamic line, filling that Abrahamic covenant. See, way, way, way back in Genesis chapter 12, God kicked off his plan to redeem all of mankind. After man had ruined everything because of sin, and sin comes in and perverts the world, causing death, inviting death into the world, God goes, I have a plan to redeem mankind, to save a people for myself, to redeem them from destruction, to show my love upon them. And God kicked off this plan to redeem all of mankind by first selecting one man out of Mesopotamia, out of modern-day Iraq, a man named Abram. And Abram, who would become Abraham, would become the father of a family who would become a nation, a nation that among all other nations would be holy, would be separate, would be different. This nation would be righteous unto God. And that nation could show all of the world. This was God's design, and it's revealed in the Old Testament that Israel, the people of God, chosen by God, would reveal to everyone else God's will and God's ways. That all other nations would be able to look at them, see the blessing upon them as they obeyed and served God, and from that they would also see this is the kind of way that God wants us to live. Not only by observance, but further by teaching through the law. That they would see God's law as they got to know Israel and they would learn these are the things that God requires. Not only would this people teach the world God's will and God's ways, but this people, this family, this chosen family of Abraham would not only teach and model, but they would produce the means for all the world to be blessed by God, not just Abraham's exclusive family. And every Gentile like you and me ought to say amen. amen. The Gospel of Matthew is written in a way that is very, very clearly aimed at the Jew, and he's hoping to help the nation of Israel see that Jesus of Nazareth isn't just some backwater hick who's lost his mind, Nazareth being a little backwater country town, that he was born in this listed genealogy, that he is, in fact, Jewish from Abraham, the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures, the Jewish prophecies, the Jewish hope that he is the seed of Father Abraham. He's not the proponent of some new, outsider, pagan, ungodly religion. 
that Jesus didn't come to overthrow or cancel out God's law. Jesus didn't come to annul or cancel or remove God's covenants to Abraham and to David. Jesus came and professed this himself to fulfill. To fulfill every promise that God made to the nation of Israel, every prophecy that God gave through the nation of Israel, every covenant that God made with Israel, like the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12. Let's read this very quickly. Don't turn there necessarily for time's sake. Genesis chapter 12, I'll read verses 1 and 3. It'll be on the screens. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How then? How then through Abraham are all nations of the earth blessed? By his seed, by his descendant, his son through lineage, Jesus Christ making way by means of the cross for everybody, every Jew, every Gentile, for all of humanity, all nations of the earth to return to the Father, not only the Father of the Jew, but the Father of all mankind. And we return there by repenting of sin and trusting in Jesus Christ. He made way this redemption from that sin by faith. And we see that faith modeled in good old faithful Abraham, who when God makes these covenant promises to Abraham, it would go on to say, and Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. A few weeks ago, we talked about this very passage and the concept that Galatians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul teaches us that when Genesis was teaching that God would bless all nations through faithful Abraham, it was because Abraham was counted as righteous before God because he believed in God's word. And that is the same exact way that you and I, through faithful Abraham, through his seed, Jesus Christ, we are counted righteous before God. No longer, no matter how many times you have sinned, no matter how bad your sin is, that if you trust in Jesus Christ and turn and repent from sin, then the seed of Abraham applies to you and you are blessed in Jesus Christ. This is how Jesus is revealed in Matthew's genealogies. First, as the hope to the Israelites, to the Jews. Secondly, Jesus is the hope of all people. He's the hope of the Gentiles. See, although Jesus was definitely and clearly the Jewish Messiah, the Savior of God's chosen people, Israel, God is not merely the God of the Jew. He's not a God who can just relegate himself to one people group and go, that's my people, no one else. See, God is not only the God of the Jew. He is the God of all of humanity. Amen? Amen? He's the God of all the earth. He's the God of all creation. All universe belongs to him. He's the God of the cattle on a thousand hills. That doesn't mean go count a thousand hills and go, okay, he owns these cows and someone else can have all the rest. That's a metaphor, hyperbole, making the case he owns it all. It's all his. Every human 
He is the God of all. Scripture makes it abundantly clear that God will save people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. And if you want to be a part of seeing that beautiful, true beauty come to pass, I'd encourage you to sign up for that perspectives class that you heard about just a moment ago. I've heard so many people that have gone through that class rave about how it changed their view of the world, changed their view of their responsibility as a Christian, and gave them a passion for missions. All of us know that we should care about missions, but knowing what we should care about and actually caring about it can be two different things. Not only do we see God's provision to the Gentiles and God's promise to bless all nations through Abraham, but unexpectedly in this genealogy, what we don't realize, when we read that genealogy, we can just run through it and not feel a few things that the first century Jew would have felt. If you were a first century Jew and you read this genealogy, it would have jarred you to see five women named on this list. It doesn't make sense in traditional ancient Jewish culture to have women listed in genealogies. They were only ever listed if they made a massive impact on something or if there was some connection that they were trying to make for a certain purpose. Apart from that, birthright and lineage always pass through men and therefore lineages or genealogies always would just account men. So as Matthew making all these cases about Jesus in the genealogy that he puts together, he highlights these five women unexpectedly. He, he highlights Tamar and Rahab, Ruth and Bathsheba and Mary. All but Mary, so four out of the five, had Gentile connections of some kind. All, including Mary, had a cloud of suspicion surrounding their sexual behavior whether or not it was warranted. We see, thankfully, the angel comes and tells Joseph, no, your suspicions around Mary are not warranted. The child who is within her was conceived within her by the Holy Spirit. It's very peculiar and very uncommon for women to have been listed in this genealogy. Nonetheless, these mentions that would raise a few questions tell us a few things. This lineage is comprised of men, women, adulterers, prostitutes, heroes, and Gentiles. Jesus will be the Savior of all. Jesus will be the Savior of all. If the Messiah, the Savior of the world, can be born from this kind of ancestry, he can be the deliverer of all kinds of people, even disreputable ones. If you're hearing me this morning, and perhaps you're thinking that you've made a mess of your life, if you're not thinking that, let me just say that you have. <laughs> but maybe that reality is a little more in your face today. Maybe you're really confronted and aware Maybe you're in the midst of some really bad circumstances of your own making. And maybe you've made your own bed and you find yourself having to lay in it and you're going, I have messed this up. What could God want with me? What could he do with me? How could he love me? How could he invite me? How could he save me? Look no further than the lineage of our Savior to see a bunch of sinners 
Look no further than Jesus' lineage to see that God only used a perfect person one time because there only ever was one perfect person. All the rest of them, even as David is highlighted in this lineage. If you're familiar with David's story at all, for all of his wonderful exploits and for all of his moments of shining faithfulness, man, did he mess up. He had an affair when he should have been out to battle. He committed adultery. And then he tried to cover that adultery with murder. And so if you're sitting there thinking, I've messed up too much. I've made too big a mess of my life. All of these lineage, all of these descendants, all of these genealogies of Jesus are standing in line to testify to you that there is room for you and the family line of Jesus. Guys, that's good news. That's the good news for all of us. Because none of us deserve, none of us have a right, none of us have squeaky cleanliness enough to be associated with the perfect holy man, Jesus Christ. Yet, he associates himself with the prostitute. He associates himself with the Gentile, the outsider. He eats with the tax collector and the sinner to where the self-righteous religious person goes, who can this Jesus be? Doesn't he know who he's hanging out with? And Jesus says, yeah, I didn't come for the well. I came for the sick, the spiritually sick, those who recognize their need. In fact, there was only one crowd of people, one type of person that Jesus abhorred. And it was those who didn't think they needed saving. It was those who thought they were good, those who had enough good deeds stacked up that they would look at other people that were less than or outsiders or different and look down the nose on them. And to those people, Jesus rebuked them and said, woe to you. If you're a sister watching in the jail right now, God has not written you off. The same way he did not write off Tamar or Rahab or Bathsheba. If you're thinking, I've come from the wrong background, I've made too many bad decisions, I've messed up too much, take a number. Get in line. We're with you. We, all of us, have a gracious and merciful Savior who humbled himself to become a baby because that was the doorway and the path that the Father chose to bring reconciliation to us. It's good news to everyone who humbles himself before God and recognizes their need to be saved. Jesus says, I came for you. As we move on, if you're very attentive at all, as you've read through the genealogies in Matthew and you noticed in verse 17 that it concludes with, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations And from David to the deportation of Babylon were 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to Christ were 14 generations. But if you go back and you study the Old Testament, you see that there's names that were left out. And that it wasn't actually 14 in there throughout each of these gaps. So is Matthew lying? Or did he just not know? Did he have flawed accounts? What's going on there? Why did he do this? 
Because it's easy for any of us to go back to the Old Testament and see that there's names in this lineage list that Matthew didn't include. This shows us that Matthew wasn't actually trying to create a comprehensive list. Rather, he's making a selective, uh, selective list for a purpose, for a specific purpose. He made a selective pattern for a specific purpose. Notice, when he made that selective pattern of 14 to 14 to 14, he was trying to make a point. And here and again is our gap of being modern Westerners. Because if you were an ancient first century Jew, you would be familiar with the concept of what's called gematria. Gematria is where in these ancient biblical days, they would assign numeric values to the consonants in their language. And those values would add up to different things. If you're reading the book of Revelation and you see that the number of man is 666, did he just say that in the pulpit? If you were a first century Jew, you would have read that and you would have gone, oh, he's talking about Nero. Well, what does that mean to us today? Well, that's for another time. That's an example of gematria. Notice he emphasizes 14, 14, 14. And he's talking about King David. The consonants in David's name, 646, DVD, hey. DVD, David, also the one who is mentioned as the 14th person in the line of the lineage. Matthew is doing something on purpose. To the first century Jew, and hopefully to us who know who these things or find these things, he is trying to emphasize the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He is the son of David. Well, okay, if the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant was that all people can be counted righteous by faith like Abraham was, then what does it mean to us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant? Well, if Jesus was that fulfillment, let's look at this very quickly in 2 Samuel 7. I'll go there quickly. Don't turn for time's sake. You can follow on the screen. To David, God said this, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Right here, he's literally talking about Solomon. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And although he's literally here talking about Solomon, there is typology happening here talking about Jesus. Here's where it deviates from talking about Jesus. Where it says, when he commits iniquity, because Solomon committed iniquity, Jesus did not. I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. There's a foreshadowing. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, if you look at this and you look at the history of the nation of Israel and you take this 100% only as a practical sense, you think, one, potentially God's a liar because there's not a king descended from David who is reigning in a monarchy over Israel right now. Or two, you're thinking, well, that was broken or paused for a moment and it will come again, that God will reestablish the kingdom of Israel. And you could believe that as well as this third thing, which is that there is a king ruling and reigning over Israel right now. 
And he's also ruling and reigning over the whole entire world right now. And he is the son of Abraham, the son of David, the ruling, reigning king from the line of David as accounted in this genealogy. His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the king of all people. Jesus is the king of all people. Not Herod from the opening chapters of Matthew. Not priests who would try to use their religious power to rule and manipulate and control. Not Caesar who convinced himself that he was a god and a king at the same time. There was someone who was and is that, the god and king at the same time, the eternal king of kings, Jesus Christ. Not some prime minister or president or person in power today who gives themselves these false senses of presumptive power. There is one king forever, the king eternal, Jesus Christ. And this is wonderful news. We could look throughout history and throw any king out there for us to discuss. There are many kings who are famous and infamous for many different reasons. And we could throw a few out there who were tyrannical, and use their people and oppress their people. And those people lived in perpetual fear of the power of those evil kings. Yet on the other side, there were people who had good kings, who led well, who cared for the welfare of their people, who loved them, who served them. And yet even those kings who led well and served well and loved their people were still flawed and by their flaws would from time to time fail their people. But we have the one king, the true king, the eternal king, who will never leave us, never forsake us, never has sinned, never will sin, never has wronged us, never will wrong us, will always be there for us, is always with us, loves us with an everlasting love. No matter how many times you stumble and fall, he is there as the holy king above all, ready with his arms open to love you. This is wonderful news that the king sovereign over the universe is good and perfectly loving and faithful and kind and oh so patient, long-suffering, merciful, loving to us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. The arrival of this king that Herod tried to kill is the arrival of hope. We respond, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. We fall on our knees and hear the angels' voices, hear their rejoicing because of that night divine, that godly, otherworldly, extraterrestrial heavenly night where the king steps off of his throne to a manger in straw with cows and donkeys and sheep and shepherds. And in that we rejoice in our eternal hope. Can you imagine the hope that is felt among the shepherds and among the magi and among Bethlehem and others 
when they begin to see that their king has come. We rejoice in our eternal hope. We reject the lies of temporary hope. All the lies of this world that would tell you, here's how you find hope. No, 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 no. They're fickle. They come and go. Jesus is our eternal hope. And we respond by three, serving our king with undivided loyalty. We bring him gifts as the Magi did. We celebrate and rejoice and bow down as the shepherd did. We give our lives to him as he gave his life for us.